Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Ken Broad, and I'm a founding member of Jackson Square Partners, located right here in the Presidio in San Francisco. Our firm is a proud supporter of the Commonwealth Club and is pleased to underwrite today's exceptionally timely program with Ray Dalio, founder, co-chief investment officer, and chairman of Bridgewater Associates. Ray is a prolific author and leading expert in investment philosophy and corporate management. His latest book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, is a far more detailed and expansive perspective that materially furthers a topic Mansur Olson described 40 years ago in his seminal book, The Rise and Decline of Nations. Ray walks us through five centuries of economic conditions, political movements, and major shifts in wealth and the power of nations. He highlights the hidden patterns and provides insights derived from history to better understand and navigate the times to come. Moderating our conversation is the relentlessly inquisitive Sir Michael Moritz, a partner at Sequoia Capital. Just a quick reminder to our viewers, we will be taking questions and encourage you to submit those in the text chat during the program. Now, please join me in welcoming Ray Dalio and Sir Michael Moritz to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Ken. Um, I'm so excited to be here with um, such an interesting group of people. So I want to uh, get some ideas out there and then uh, turn to Michael, uh, looking forward to our exchange and then uh, some question and answers session afterwards. So, um, okay, to give you a little bit of background, um, for the last 50 years or so, I've been a global macro investor, which means in almost all the world's liquid markets, emerging countries, developed countries, and I've had to think about their uh, economics, their markets, and their politics and everything else. And I learned along the way that the things that surprised me most were things that never happened in my lifetime before. And that in order to understand what's happening today and deal with what's happening today that I need to go back in history. And um, I learned that uh, first by studying the Great Depression. I was able to anticipate the 2008 financial crisis. I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't understand that dynamic. And three important things um, are happening today that drew my attention to the need um, to study them in the past because what's happening today has not happened in our lifetimes before, but has happened many times in history. So that led me to study the last 500 years of history, particularly the rise and declines of reserve currencies and the reserve currency empires. And then I studied the dynasties since the Tang dynasty, so around 600 in China, and I see these patterns. What causes the rises and declines and as it relates to these things? So I have a few slides that I'd like to go over with you first. If you could put up the first slide, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. So what are these three big things that are happening uh, now in a way that they never happened for before? First, um, there's a, a size of big debt creations um, and then debt monetizations. In other words, central banks were running deficits um, and central banks are um, buying the bonds and financially um, is monetization of that. And that's having repercussions through the world in the form of markets, behaviors, 
and also uh, inflation rates and that. So it's particularly important in the world's leading reserve currency. So that's what prompted me to want to study the rises and declines of these reserve currencies. Uh, the second is the amount of internal conflict, um, particularly over wealth and values gaps, the polarity, the development of populism on the left and populism on the right, and that type of conflict, which we see as almost irreconcilable differences. And that's nothing like that has happened in my lifetime. I like to measure things, so you'll see some of these measurements. And the third is the rise of a great power, in other words, China, to challenge the existing great power and the existing world order. And that's leading to uh, external conflicts, which we're seeing play out uh, now. And never in my lifetime was there such a power. The Soviet Union was not an economic power. Um, uh, Russia today, for example, uh, uh, has a per capita income of one-twelfth of the United States and about the size of Italy. And in, um, in studying these cycles, these um, movements, uh, particularly when those three things happen together, I um, also uh, learned more about the importance of acts of nature. Acts of nature have actually toppled more civilizations and had more... Um, uh, killed more people and so on than any of the previously mentioned things, including wars. And they take the form periodically of pandemics, droughts, and floods. And then number five, which is the most important over periods of time, is um, knowledge and technology advances. So what it looked like over time is almost like uh, I was watching the same things happen over and over again. Um, and then there's this evolution that takes place because of this knowledge and technology advances. So it almost looks like the same things, the same stories are playing out with the same characters, except they're changing their clothes and they're using the different technologies. So I'd like to show you some signs of that. I like to measure things. In the book, there are many measures, but I'll show you just a few of them here. So if you can go to the next slide, please. Um, so starting with the debt creation and the monetization, uh, the top chart shows uh, debt to GDP um, uh, for the private sector, uh, total debt to GDP, going back to 1900. And it shows the dynamic, um, the one below it, in the blue line, shows the um, interest rate, short-term interest rate. And in the red line, it shows uh, the printing of money and the creation of money as it measured in the monetary base. And so you could see that when there's a lot of debt, and, and like in the first circle and you go down, and there's the hitting of a zero interest rates, that form of, in, of uh, easing ceases to exist. And then you get a lot of the printing of uh, money, which causes the reaction. And that's, uh, I mentioned that before, that studying that dynamic is what allowed me to deal with the 2008 financial crisis, which is the next line on the chart. You see the circle on top, high debts, hits zero interest rates, and uh, then the large printing of money. And you see that come in two waves, um, that, that printing of money. And that passes itself through the financial system and through the economy um, in that way. So, um, and we'll deal with the consequences of that in the um, 
question and answer session. The next chart, please. This these charts, the one on the left shows uh, the how big the wealth gaps are. The one on the right is the how big the uh, income gaps are. And so they're the largest um, since they were in the uh, 1930s. Um, so uh, that's a source of conflict. And it's behind, of course, the populism of the left and populism of the right in terms of classics. You know, in the 1930s around the world, that played out in uh, four democracies choosing to be autocracies in order to get control of those types of uh, conflicts and the populism that's associated with that. And we have that. We see that in many different ways. And of course, that has the political dimensions that we'll probably talk more about in in the Q&A that even extends to the point of, are there such irreconcilable differences that we've lost um, compromise um, because no side is willing to lose. It's a question like in the 2024 elections, uh, will um, any side accept losing and how does that affect our system? So that I wanted to go back and study too. The next one, please. Uh, this chart um, goes back to 1900 and um, the red line um, shows um, uh, Republican um, in the um, House and in the Senate, um, and it shows um, um, how conservative the votes are. Uh, the red line going up means more conservative. The uh, line going down uh, means more um, uh, liberal, uh, less conservative. And the blue line shows the same for the Democrats. And so what you could see is the gap in the values um, uh, is the greatest since 1900. Um, I had another chart, but I uh, forgot to include it, which showed the amount of voting across party lines. And there's the least amount of voting across party lines, least compromise as there ever was. And so that also, um, what's happening now with this internal conflict, made me want to study that. So next chart, please. Um, This chart um, shows... um, the rises and declines of different empires uh, going back to 1500. I'm blessed by having a fabulous research team and that we dig through archives and we um, formed uh, different measures of power. I'll show you eight different measures of power that we're looking at um, uh, to help to construct these times. But they're the um, an average of those measures of power to create an overall power index. And that goes back to 1500. Um, and you could see, um, like, the red line is, is is China. And you could see when we started out there, um, um, China was at the top. And if you follow that along, you see the big drop in the power of China from just after 1800 till um, just after uh, the liberation, as they call it, 1949. And you see that then since then, the big acceleration in China, um, rise in power. Um, You could see the Dutch, the Dutch were the richest, the next after that. And so you could see that arc in the orange line. Um, And then you could see the British in the black line. And you could see the American empire um, in the blue line. Um, And you could see then other... uh, uh, countries, other empires at the time, 
uh, Germany, Spain, which really represented the Habsburgs, um, and Japan, Russia, and so on during those periods of time. So we can uh, clearly see uh, the rises and declines of empires, and we could see, clearly see uh, the very rapid rise of China as a power to rise to challenge each other's. And we also can see that in those crossover periods, there's a greater risk of war. There's been a history of wars. Turn to the next chart, please. I mentioned that there are eight um, measures of power. Actually, in the book, I show um, a total of 18 different types of measures because um, in order to understand something and view it objectively, I need to see it through objective measurements. Um, and um, these are um, of uh, powers of education, innovation and technology, competitiveness in world markets, um, military, uh, size of world trade, economic output, the power of the financial system, and the reserve currency status. And if you could see that, um, that almost tells the story of the typical um, rise and decline of empires. And they, they, they really measures more of, uh, of health. You know, it, the more powerful you are, not only are they leading indicators, but they're measures of health, um, how strong are your exports? How strong is your technology development and so on? So we can monitor those to see how our countries are doing and evolve that. Um, and in the book, um, I show um, those numerous measures for 18 countries. I'd like to go to the next chart, please. Um, the next chart, I'm just going to quickly take you through an archetypical cycle um, uh, which I call the big cycle um, um, of the rises and declines of um, empires or countries. Um, so uh, we can think of it as the big cycle um, beginning when the empire, or let's call it the new world order, begins and when it uh, ends. And so what I mean by new world order is I mean the ruling systems. And um, so archetypically, they come along after wars. Um, a new world order is typically uh, after a world war, and a new internal order uh, typically comes after a civil war. Uh, for example, the most recent uh, world order uh, that we are now still in is the American world order that began in 1945 after World War II, um, and the last internal order um, in China began, the existing one began in 1949, so they, uh, after the Chinese Civil War. And so these wars uh, then determine who's got the power, and then they um, establish what the new order is. And the creations of these new world orders are typically followed by a period in which the new leadership uh, consolidates power, and there is a rebuilding of education and productivity that brings about a period of peace and prosperity. And during this period, there is little or no fighting because no one wants to fight the dominant power. And people are so sick of the war that they want to get back to building good lives rather than fighting. And the wars um, then are also great equalizers that have redistributed wealth and opportunities. So the wealth gaps um, are generally uh, reduced. And in this rise phase of the cycle, 
the empire becomes more productive and competitive in world markets. Uh, so its share of world trade grows and it becomes richer. And when its share of world trade becomes large enough uh, that most of the global transactions are commonly in its currency, its currency is the common money uh, that becomes the common money used, and that makes it a reserve currency, what we call a reserve currency. Uh, for example, when the Dutch uh, were the richest and had the largest uh, trading country, uh, that led the Dutch guilder to become the world's leading reserve currency. And the same was true for the British. When the British became the largest and richest uh, trading empire, that led to the British pound becoming the world's largest reserve currency. When the U.S. became the richest and largest trading country in the world, uh, that created the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. And now with China growing, it's beginning to become a, a reserve currency. So um, and that also um, also happens with the world's financial center. Um, during this phase, um, these countries um, developed the world's financial center. So, for example, the Dutch, uh, when they were on top, Amsterdam was the world's uh, leading financial center. When the British were on top, London was the world's leading financial center. Um, and when the U.S. was on top or is on top, um, the New York is the world's financial center. And we are seeing uh, uh, China and its financial centers growing. So it's now the second largest financial center. And so that sort of gets them to the top, and then it begins to uh, cause the seeds for difficulty. So when a country's money becomes the world's most used money, uh, people around the world want to save uh, so they bought, they want to save in that currency. So they buy debt of the world's leading reserve currency, which gives that country the exorbitant privilege of being able to borrow a lot of money, which contru contributes to its growing indebtedness. Also, as people get used to this prosperity and good returns uh, on investments like stocks, they increasingly bet on it. And that also contributes to the borrowing money to bet on that. Um, and eventually that sows the seeds for um, a financial bubble as a lot of debt is accumulated. Uh, that begins the top phase when the riches sow the seeds for uh, the decline. As countries get richer, um, they naturally also become more expensive and less competitive, um, especially um, since after the wars, there are, is a rebuilding of the countries, which also um, learn from what the leading country is uh, doing to become more competitive. For example, the Dutch were very competitive in shipbuilding that took them all around the world, and, um, and they would then collect the riches around the world. But the British then hired the uh, Dutch architects and so on and build ships more inexpensively and become more competitive. And that helps to create the shift. Also, uh, prosperity distributes wealth unevenly. Um, so naturally, the, the wealth gift gap between the haves and the have-nots um, rise. So you see indebtedness rise and wealth gaps rise. Um, and eventually, the country has a, a lot of debt, um, and which uh, um, can't be financed. It doesn't have enough money 
And so there are deficits that are run. And just a classic part of that cycle is sort of the coffers are empty and then they um, um, print more money or they slip money in like the Romans uh, put less gold in the, their gold coins. And that creates the dynamic of the inflation and so on, particularly if there's the rise of um, um, an external power. So you always see the economic problems um, and also the signaling, the the printing of, of money as being um, a problem. If you have enough financial resources, you can buy practically anything, anything including um, um, mercenaries um, as um, soldiers um, in order to um, um, fight your wars. And uh, when you don't have money, you're in trouble. And so... Um, um, let me give a couple of more slides just to get, paint the big picture before we get into other things. Um, this next one just shows uh, deaths from major conflicts. Uh, so wars um, uh, uh, over a period of time. This goes back to 1500. And the one on the right shows um, deaths from acts of nature, uh, which, um, it, you know, is, is, is somewhat interesting as also we think about uh, climate change and how that might enter into the picture. But anyway, we've been blessed by not having um, much of those um, in our lifetimes. And then there's the last chart, which is of the uh, greatest force. And that's next chart, please. Um, that next chart um, shows um, the impact of um, technology or adaptation. Um, all those uh, big swings um, in these charts uh, hardly show up. So if you look at the, the chart on the left, which is uh, per capita real GDP, so that's a measure of uh, incomes uh, as a measure of living standards, and the one on the right shows uh, life expectancy, um, what you can see is that um, there's that big upward trend um, and, um, and in, in all of those. And even the big swings that we see in the other charts look comparatively small in relationship to those things because we have the cycles. Uh, the bad times typically might last about 10 years and they barely show up. So um, that's the picture. So I wanted to take that opportunity in a few minutes to lay it out. Some of the charts, there are a whole bunch of interesting charts in the book. And I, I understand, by the way, that you'll be given a book for free um, um, so I hope you'll look through it and see it, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I look forward now to, uh, discussing it with Michael and, uh, with, um, you all through the question and answer session. So thank you. Michael, over to you. Ray, that was fascinating, and there's a lot more fascinating stuff. You just gave everybody a taster of uh, what's in your book, The History of the Last 500 Years. Um, tell us how you became a history buff. Was that something that you developed as a kid? or No, I, it was a necessity. Um, I'll tell you, the, the, I was first time. Um, in 1971, I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, in the summer, and uh, on August 15th, President Nixon um, got on the television and announced that the United States would not pay its money in gold, okay? It, it used to be that 
money only was gold, and um, but the, and paper money was, was like checks in a checkbook, and he defaults on uh, the that, and I figured, wow, this is a crisis. We don't money as we know it will cease to exist, and I went on the floor of the stock exchange where I was clerking at the time. And um, I thought we we're going to have a pandemonium and a crisis. And you, you had pandemonium, but the stock market went up a lot. And I didn't understand. That was exactly the opposite of what I would have expected. And then I studied in history and I found I didn't know devaluations then. And I found that Roosevelt did the exact same thing on March 5th, 1933. And he got on the radio rather than the television. But he did the exact same thing. He severed the relationship with gold so he can print a lot more money. And that was the bottom in the stock market and so on. And I started to understand that. So in order to understand things that were happening in my lifetime, I needed to go back and study what happened in other lifetimes. And that's why I say studying the Great Depression helped me anticipate the 2008 financial crisis. So it was necessity. It was, of course, fascinating, but it was necessity that drove me to do it. Well, I, and the rest of us are all the richer for you having gone on that personal exploration. Um, now, it strikes me in reading your book that, you know, the three big themes of the book, debt and reserve currencies and uh, the internal order of particular countries and then potential conflicts between countries um, could in a way uh, in a contemporary setting be um, a discussion about the two big global empires of today, the United States and China. And obviously, you're a deep student of history. I wonder whether, in order to begin the conversation here, you could talk about the significance of 2008 through your lens uh, and about what that particular year um, taught us about China on the one hand and the United States on the other. Um, um, leading up to that, I started to go to China in 1984, and I've gone, um, I've been there. It's been an important part of my life since then. Um, and since then, I would say, um, I went in 84. Deng Xiaoping came in 1978, um, and then you had an open-door policy and reform. And since then, per capita income in China has increased by 26 times. Um, life expectancy has increased by 10 years. The poverty rate of uh, going hungry has gone from 88% to less than 1% and so on. And we, over that period of time, we, in 2008, uh, that's when the, we hit zero interest rates and the cent and it had a lot of debt, a debt bubble. We've had lots of debt bubbles before, but when you hit zero interest rates, then you are in a different realm. So that was the first time of the printing of a lot of money and the creating of uh, that uh, gap. That also created, uh, contributed to a wealth gap because mechanistically, and I'm more of a mechanic than an ideologue, um, um, what happens is when a central bank buys financial assets such as bonds, it gives it to an investor who then buys other financial assets. And so financial asset prices went up a lot, 
but there was not as much trickling down of that. And that also further contributed to the wealth gap. Of course, technology gap played a role. And that started to set itself up at the same time when China is more competitive and member of WTO and so on, that uh, there was a symbiotic relationship with China in which uh, we would buy their goods and they would buy our bonds because they were thought, like I said before, that that's the way to save. You own the bonds. And, um, and, and but by buy, lending us the money, by buying our bonds, we bought that. And then, of course, we had the combination of the wealth gap and the um, um, jobs issue that created the populism that uh, really came to the surface largely uh, with Donald Trump's election and has been uh, carried through since. So that's in how your, I look at 2008 or the whole thing. And Ray, in your, in your trips to China in the aftermath of 2008, did you detect with all the policymakers and, and pundits that you uh, meet when you go to China, did you detect any change in their view of the United States or their attitude towards the United States? Um, um, not much. Um, I, 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 I had the privilege of being with them owning these bonds and not knowing, actually. It was They owned a lot of... Um, uh, agency bonds, Freddie Mac, and so on, um, and um, and they didn't know whether we would default on those. And I watched them go through that. Um, but they do know history. The Chinese, their religion is history, and they do know that that sequence. It wasn't really the change didn't arrive um, much from that. Um, they they knew to build their economy and continued on. The change, I would say, came more um, as populism emerged, um, particularly, let's say, Donald Trump's populism more, and the um, now the broadening of a anti-China. You know, Democrats and Republicans and most Americans are now more uh, anti-China, and um, all of that together, I I suppose, with watching what's happening now has affected. I think the threats. Um, and uh, the recognition that there are two different approaches to doing things. So there's an ideological warfare as well as uh, that. That evolved more, I would say, in the last, um, I particularly te- 10 years. Um, she came to power, the Xi administration came to power nine years ago or almost 10 years ago. Um, and they were mostly focused internally on how to do certain things like, um, again, reform their economy, make it more global, make more open up, develop financial markets, and then also uh, deal with corruption, um, the big anti-corruption policies. And then we, of course, then had what we know has happened since. As, as you contemplate China and have thought about it and continue to watch it avidly, what what are the sorts of lessons that you would encourage Americans to take away from the China history of the last 30 years that perhaps we could apply here? Well, the most important thing is um, to try to have people who haven't had much contact with China to actually understand what's going on and the motivations behind it. And it's not easy because the communications is not so uh, good. Uh, but but uh, people who are there, uh, like I think uh, Sequoia is there or others are there, um, um, have some contact. And, and 
uh, to know that uh, the Chinese are very practical people, um, and, and they'll um, this idea of things that are at odds, um, such as how do you have a communist party and develop the largest uh, capital, second largest capital markets in the world and create billionaires? How is that consistent? Well. Um, as Deng Xiaoping said, uh, when basically asked that question, he says it doesn't matter whether um, a cat is black or white as long as it catches mice, if it works, if the system works. And so what we're seeing now is uh, things that are going on there that people may not understand, um, such as um, um, uh, it, it's a very it's a top down, uh, more autocratic uh, system, um, unlike um, the United States, which is much more a bottom-up system. And so things like, um, I'll call them common prosperity, or um, the dealing with, um, um, uh, a good example would be gaming. Um, they um, want to control, um, make sure your kids don't watch too many games, too much, spend too much time, and they control what's on the internet. Now, in the United States, they would say, okay, that's the role of parents and so on. Um, but, you know, there are pros and cons to each because of what we're seeing on that. Te so tell us, uh, sorry to interrupt, mate, but tell us about your view of, again, in your book, you, you, you stress the importance that the uh, Chinese attach to long-term planning. And what are the consequences of that for the, for the U.S., where the administration may change every four years or eight years? Can you contrast that for uh, viewers and listeners? Um, yeah, there's an arc. The arc that I just described, in other words, a new order, what does a new leader do? He consolidates power, then you build the basic. Mm -hmm. And so there's an arc um, of um, of an empire and a dynasty, and you do different things at different parts of that to get that. And so it's very true that they think um, in five year, twenty five year, and even beyond uh, what that arc looks like, because they have so many dynasties that have gone through it that they have studied that, and so that's their that's their approach. Um, I think um, uh, there's... Is that, is that a big competitive advantage, do you think? Oh, it's a huge competitive advantage. I mean, just thinking, where will we be five years from now? Now, of course, we have a different competitive advantage, okay? Um, but um, where will we be five years from now? Where will we be 10 years? The plan to um, um, put resources behind uh, new technologies... Um, so like the 2025 plan that was so controversial, um, and they measure their performance against that plan like a good business would. They have the metrics, and every two and a half years they uh, review it, and they uh, you know they fire the people who don't deliver it, and it's kind of like that kind of almost corporate management. Um, it, um, what they have been, what they lacked before, and have um, changed is the creativity element. In other words, um, there's so you, ha you have a plan um, and you go according to that. But what they've done um, with the development of um, uh, venture capital and the capital markets and, and the ideas is to create a nurturing of the, that type of creativity, which was the thing that they would have lost. 
Um, and so like they have a new program, which they call the Little Giants program. And the Little Giants program is to find in each of the provinces, you know, like the best new ideas that have competitions. It's like dancing with the stars or something. They have these competitions and you find out who wins and then they get venture capital money and you can privately invest in them. And then they go public in a new stock market in Beijing. So uh, it's more it, 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 it's more like that. Um, the United States has um, what I would say the great competitive advantage, which I don't think it's taking full advantage of, um, is that um, uh, it's it's a country of uh, immigrants in which we can draw the best and the brightest from all over the world, and they can be uh, citizens, and you have um, rule of law, and you have intellectual property protections, and um, you can create a very, very creative environment. Of course, in China, they have numbers on their sides. The population is more than four times the size of the United States population. So naturally, as they raise their per capita income, if it, if it gets to be half the U.S., then China is twice the size of the U.S. And so um, we have that uh, dynamic going on, too. Let, too. Let, let me dive into it. And I should encourage everybody on the call here to uh, send in your um, questions as well, and I'll endeavor to include as many uh, as many as possible. Um, I'd be curious about your um, uh, view on the level of education in China. Um, and obviously, there are vast numbers of people here. And I'm more interested in the absolute number of very well-educated people in China, particularly in STEM, um, than in the broader brushstrokes. And talk about the importance of how you see that playing out over the next 20 years. Well, um, they turn out about eight times as many STEM graduates as uh, the United States. So the numbers are overwhelmingly in the favor of China. Um, the um, the as far as uh, the excellence of the universities, um, the, uh, China only has two universities which are in the top 100 universities basis. So when we look at the uh, statistic numbers uh, of it, a lot more quality, uh, excuse me, a, a huge amount more quantity. Um, the levels are improving in, in, imp in importance. Um, the average level of an American education, the average American education in comparison to other countries has declined significantly. I think in PISA scores, it's something like 37th. In the, so we've lost a lot of the average American is not very well educated and the, the gap is not what it was. But the elite education in the United States for creativity places like Silicon Valley and so on um, um, is uh, uniquely competitive in the United States. So that's how the complexion looks like. Mm -hmm. um, would you have programs? I mean, obviously, there are many students from China that come for further education, particularly graduate studies in in uh, in the U.S. or some of the better European universities. Would you have programs that uh, you would encourage the U.S. to um, to commence to encourage those sorts of people to stay in the U.S.? Yes, uh, um, a lot of Chinese. Um, 
who came educated uh, sought to be to stay permanently in the United States and have contributed a lot along those lines. Um, I know that the argument is of the stealing of intellectual property. Um, that's a whole other argument, uh, but it's also very difficult to re- to retain and prevent that. And there's a question of a cost benefit. But I do, as I said before, say uh, we are unique in being able to attract the best and the brightest in the world to be able to do that and to create those cultures. It's a unique benefit, which um, I think everybody would benefit from. And, and But you have to... Uh, deal with that in terms of the uh, sense of intellectual property protections. Intellectual property protections um, have not um, uh, historically or even now, they're very difficult because of the nature of cybersecurity. Um, Ray, one of the things that you just touched on in, in both of the in the answers to both of my previous questions was immigrants and immigration and the influence of immigrants. In reading your book, I didn't see you place a lot of emphasis on that. Um, am I wrong about that? I'm, no, I'm just... no. I, I'm, I, well, I don't. There's a lot, so many subjects. I, I, I think I made clear about that in the book. Uh, I don't know how many paragraphs, but anyway, let me be clear. Um, That's the uniquely defining characteristic of the United States and one of the great um, advantages, I think. Have any other previous empires benefited as much from immigration as Um, the U.S.? um, Not not from immigration. The United States, I mean, of course, some countries, uh, Australia, some countries have benefited, of course, from immigration, but what you see across dynasties, even if you were to see the Chinese dynasties, um, and it goes back really to Confucian uh, uh, definition of meritocracy, is that the creating um, the greatest opportunity of drawing on the broadest population has been integral to success. So if you see, um, uh, for example, in the Song dynasty, this is what goes way back, or about the Confucian, when they, um, you don't know where the best are going to come from, what part of the population. Um, so to allow the greatest accessibility of that population draws the best talent forward, and it also creates a system which is fairer. And that is what you see through um, that meritocracy from wherever it comes from has been very, very, very effective consistently through dynasties and empires. Uh, The idea of moving from one country to another and what uh, the United States could be as a home of immigrants was really more uniquely the, the United States being able to draw from the rest of the world. No other countries have done that so well. One other question, and we have a lot of other things to talk about. Um, We haven't talked much about debt and reserve currencies in the U.S., and I want to get to those. But um, I am uh, interested in your views of of demography and how uh, the composition of populations in different countries, whether it's the U.S. or China or Japan or Italy, perhaps, um, how that influences your view uh, of the next 10 or 20 years for each of the, or for these various countries where demographic patterns differ? Well, demographics as traditionally, um, um, there are two dimensions. 
Um, what is your working age population relative to your retired population as the one is supporting the other? That can be more difficult as you move more into people who are not working retirement and have health issues. And how does that work? Um, that's part of it. And then, of course, um, GDP or economic activity total is the number of people times the output per person. Um, um, but um, it really um, um, is it. So looking at it, those two levels, the real question is, what is the development of technology and productivity that replaces people? Because some simultaneously what's going on is that um, sometimes it, uh, we have we can have an issue that people um, don't uh, technology is replacing people. And as it does, how do, then that's a divide the pie. So some people can argue uh, it's not a, anywhere a significant problem in an environment where technology is contributing to productivity by a greater amount. That's a divide the pie question more than it is a demographic question. So I think I would be leaning more in that direction. Mm -hmm. Now, let me, um, as, I, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning, and as you pointed out in your slides, debt and the issue of the reserve currency are enormously important in, in, in your mind as you think about uh, what it is you do um, um, every day in, in investing. I think for many people, the idea of federal debt or reserve currency is a very abstract um, things. Can you put them... In, uh, can you clarify the importance of of both? Uh, you know, for the everyday listener, really. Great. I'll, I'll try. I, I, I want to ex uh, describe um, the mechanics, the cause effect relationship of it. Um, so, one man's debts are another man's financial assets, and when there's more and more debt. That either has to be paid back in, let's call it hard money, uh, which creates an economic downturn. Just uh, by the nature of debt, when you borrow, you can spend more than you earn. and But then when you pay back, you have to spend less than you earn if it was not deflated. So the um, when you're holding it, like we're now in a cycle where uh, p most people think that the amount of money they have, it determines how, much, how rich they are, and they don't think of that in inflation-adjusted terms because they haven't had much of that. So think about it today. You get basically zero interest rate in an economy uh, uh, that has, um, last year was 7% inflation, but might have a 5% inflation. So when you think of cash... One thinks, oh, that's a safe investment. You don't realize that you're losing maybe 5% of your buying power every year, and that's not a safe investment, and that's not a good investment. So when, so the mechanics of this, we're now in the part of the cycle where they you know, um, put out a lot of money. There's a lot of checks, and everybody gets a lot of money, and everybody's happy about that. But of course, as people spend the money, prices go up, and then people are, are surprised by inflation. Um, and they have a higher level of inflation. So as that tilts, it changes the willingness to lend. Um, and also in the world, because the world is owning so much dollar-denominated debt, 
because it is the world's reserve currency and they save in that, uh, portfolios are heavily skewed to dollar-denominated debt. Now, if the um, if those didn't want, the, they're going to have to buy a lot more debt because we're still going to have a lot of deficits and we're still going to have to sell that debt. And um, if they choose to sell that debt, and, and then you have to not only the new deficits that has to be sold, but you have other debt that's sold, and that puts the central bank in the position of printing more money. So that's a very risky situation for both inflation and for um, the reserve currency status. Are there any uh, plausible alternatives today to the, uh, to the dollar as a reserve currency? Um, uh, two purposes of a currency are um, a medium of exchange and a storehold of wealth. And as far as a storehold of wealth, uh, you could see the run into all sorts of star, storeholds of wealth that have taken place. Um, because they don't want to be in cash. So you could see everything goes up in value. So the, the real estate, um, particularly also when you have such low negative real interest rates. Um, so every, the storeholds of wealth can be everything. The money, um, when we call it, is, is a storehold of wealth that can be carried around with you, go from country to country, unlike the piece of real estate. Um, and now we're entering an era when there's the question of what are the alternative currencies? Um, is that a, um, a cryptocurrency? Um, do, you think, do you think it is? I think we've entered an era in which everybody's going to look at alternative currencies and not only um, uh, crypto. I, I'm, um, I have a little bit of crypto, but I'm not, I think gold is better than, Crypto, but it's an alternative gold. But you have, you'll have different currencies. Even the issue that we're seeing now uh, with Russia uh, being cut off from the uh, SWIFT system uh, can lead to um, China using um, its alternative currency, its digital currency, as an alternative currency. So you're seeing. The role of the Chinese renminbi play a role of a currency, but currencies are the things that you take around with you that have a storehold of wealth, and they're taking NFTs can be considered as whatever it is. Diamonds and gems can be considered uh, in a sense of currency. So there's going to be a competition between those types of currencies, I think. Right. We are, we're going to run out of time uh, pretty soon. So let me uh, lob a, a couple of audience questions at you, if I could. One of which was, can uh, anything be done, Ray, to change the destiny of these big cycles that you write about? Um, it's basics, really. It's almost like the three big things. First, um, are you earning more than you are spending? Do you have a good income statement and a balance sheet as a country? The country is just the aggregate of its people and companies. So can you have to do that. You have to be financially sound. And number two is you have to work well together rather than to have conflict that does you harm. Okay. So like that's true of, of all countries. You need to do those things. It's not necessarily easy. How do you spend more than you uh, earn when everybody wants more money? Um, you, you know, how do you get more productive? You know, your living standards, your power rises when you become more productive, but okay. 
Um, and then, so um, earn, achieve that. All the things that are in support of that are great. Like education is one of the best investments that we can have. And we terribly neglect um, like public education in many ways. That's a great investment. You could do a lot there. Uh, but we have to work well together. And so that, at the end of the day, the country has got to be strong. Strong, uh, it's an internal question mostly, be strong. And of course, you have to support military, but that's an expense and how you, how you do that. And then I think, um, so item number three, you've got to have the good finances, you have to have the good harmony um, to work well together, and you have to um, not get in a war with a, a power that you're, that's going to mean the cost of that war is going to be great, which means that you have to put above all else um, how that is achieved. Um, and if you do that, um, it's really not a problem, because if you think about today, we have more resources than we've ever had. Um, um, uh, real per GDP, um, um, health, um, everything is better than we uh, have ever had. And if we allocate that well and we are uh, peaceful and productive together, uh, that can be extended for as long as it lasts. There's another question, speaking of debts, uh, from an audience member, which is uh, talking about... Uh, what are your thoughts, Ray, on unfunded public pension liabilities, and what does the end game look for many states and municipalities? Um, it's a uh, yeah, it's a it, it, it's a very big issue. It's um, if you take unfunded liabilities, not just pension, but you take healthcare liabilities and such. Um, those unfunded liabilities are actually greater than the amount of debt in existence. So the promises to deliver are very large. Um, and I think that um, it's very simple. They will either be uh, dealt with by um, through taxes very, uh, and, and redistributions to fund uh, those unfunded liabilities as well as debt, or money will be uh, printed and the reduction in real interest rates will continue. Over the last 20 years or so, real interest rates, in other words, interest rates in relation to inflation, have fallen by 500 basis points, 5%. And I would expect that you're going to see more of that take place, um, just sort of the way that we saw it take place before. So I think that uh, that'll be the way that it's likely to be dealt with, because the issue is defaulting on those. And if there's defaults on that, uh, that produces depressions and political problems. So I don't think that, that that's realistic. So I think they're big. I think they're an issue. I think that they will be dealt with by printing more money, because if you're owning a liability, there's only a certain number of dollars you have to give, and dollars can be created. Right. We have time, unfortunately, for just one more question, which is this. Reading your book, it's fairly easy to conclude perhaps wrongly, that you believe that the U.S. is in a period of irreversible decline. First, uh, is that uh, assumption correct? And two, if it is, uh, what can be done to arrest it or change, change the trajectory? Um, I, I have a belief that if nothing's predestined necessarily, if, um, like I said before, if you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. 
And what I mean by that is, if you worry about these things, that will probably cause compensating adjustments to be made so that um, we would worry less about them. And if you don't worry about them, that's really scary because this is worrisome. These issues are worrisome. Um, and But as terms of what needs to be done, it, you need to get those things we have said before. The thing I look at for every country is how are its finances doing? Do you earn more than you're spending and so on? Second is, are you civil with each other and work well together? And third, are you at risk of an international war or not? And if you can handle those things, um, you're going to be okay. And today, are you uh, feeling more optimistic about the United States than you did 10 years ago or less optimistic? Much, much less. Um, we are... Um, we, uh, we followed the path, the arc that is very typical, and the populism that we're now having of the left and the right means that um, there's there's good chance there are irreconcilable differences, including even in elections. Um, I could imagine a situation where in the next presidential election, um, um, and not just for the president, for all seats, um, that there will not be an acceptance of losing. It's a win at all cost. And if that's the case, um, it's like sanctuary cities. When the federal government says, here's the rules, and then you say, I may not obey those rules, uh, there are Supreme Court cases that are coming up. And already they're being looked at in a political light. Um, will, um, um, you know, possession of guns, um, um, uh, uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, those kinds of issues when you know, the people believe that the system is so politicized that there is not that balance and objectivity, uh, they could fight at all costs. So I think that we can say when I use these measures, um, the reason I have these 18 measures in the book, and, and by the way, um, I'll update them every year so you could see whether there's improvements or not on economic, at a website called economicprinciples.org. I'll show you those numbers. You could see whether they're improving or deteriorating. And, uh, and by and large, uh, these issues have been uh, deteriorating. I think we see it around us. But well, the measures help because you could actually see it in the numbers. But no, is there more harmony? Are we working better with each other? Are our uh, finances uh, better? Um, no, they're not. And if you had to pick one country, only one country to invest in for the next 10 years, one was China, one was the U.S., where would you invest? I uh, think that... Um, Particularly, first of all, I, I would be in, in both of those countries because in both of those countries, um, in terms of major technology and innovation decisions, um, they're likely to come from both of those countries. Um, um, and I wouldn't be concentrated in one or another because I don't know who's going to win out in these various tech wars and other things, but I would be there. But I would not be so overly concentrated. The, I, I like um, Singapore and the region in the um, that area of the uh, Asian, Southeast Asia, Southeast yeah. Asia area. Um, I like a little bit of exposure to uh, 
uh, India, but uh, that's particularly Southeast Asia. And, I, and again, I look, use those three criteria. Um, how are they doing financially? Um, are, are they civil with each other and the system working, or do they have a ri risk of um, an external war? Those are the criteria I use. Ray, I think we could, uh, certainly in uh, California time, go on chattering away, at least I could very happily for the rest of the afternoon, but our program, unfortunately, uh, has come to a close. So our thanks go to you, Ray Dalio, founder, co-chief investment officer and chairman of Bridgewater Associates, and most importantly, author of The Changing World Order. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you, Michael. Thank you all.